Hello folks, Ben Buchanan, Investment Advisor, Portfolio Manager, Retirement Planner Extraordinaire. Downloading viruses of pathological optimism and investment insights straight from my brain to yours. This is the podcast on why it is important to understand the incentives of the people and businesses around you. As we will be discussing things that may seem like investment advice today, I have to tell you for regulatory purposes that anything you hear today is not intended to be a person-specific financial advice. Always consult your financial advisor, whether it is with us at Dutch Asset or elsewhere before making investment decisions. Any mentions of specific companies are not intended to be recommendations to buy, but rather anecdotes meant to convey a message or takeaway that may or may not be relevant to your specific situation. So, let's start off with a fact. Many people cannot be trusted to act in your best interest. This is not exactly a terrible thing, because they are, hopefully, acting in their own best interest. And most of the time, that's a pretty good way to build efficient markets. You don't want the guy behind the counter at your favorite coffee place to start giving you coffee for free because if he did that for everyone, the coffee shop would go out of business and you would have no coffee. In fact, the price you're getting charged by that coffee shop is probably the highest price they can charge without sending customers like you to competitors. But, as you are certainly already aware... There are tons of situations where the incentive structures in place are broken, and these broken incentives can be pretty damaging, even catastrophic. Let's first look at a couple of examples that are damaging to the country as a whole, and then look at an example that everyone needs to watch out for in their own life. So, healthcare first. Healthcare has one of the worst incentive structures of any system on earth. I'm talking about US healthcare. Uh, so let's look at some of the biggest issues. Number one, doctors and hospitals get paid to perform services not to achieve outcomes. If you go into a doctor's office or stay at a hospital, they get paid for every test they give you. Every time a doctor walks into your room, every time you get a CAT scan or an MRI, they get paid, and so their incentive is to treat you even if you don't need it. There have been some absolutely terrifying statistics about how 25 to 50% of back and knee surgeries aren't necessary and have no positive outcome. And even worse, sometimes the surgeries have negative outcomes. But alas, the surgeries pay well, and so they get done. Number two, consumers rarely pay the cost of anything that happens to them, so they don't care what the price is. Healthcare is the only market in the United States where you can pay a 300% markup for the same product that you can buy across the street. I'm specifically referring to many cities which have two hospitals, and depending on the insurance company, the patient, and who knows what else, one hospital could charge $4,500 for an MRI, and another hospital right across the street could charge $1,500. Sometimes the same hospital might even charge $1,500 versus $4,500. This is insanity. Number three, insurance companies do not really care about lowering the cost of care. 
because they can increase premiums and no one can do anything about it. And of course, insurance companies are not allowed to charge different types of people, like people with pre-existing conditions, young people versus old, etc. Insurance companies cannot charge different amounts to different people. This ruins the entire functioning of insurance and creates insane market inefficiencies. Now, I actually support insurance co companies having to cover people with pre-existing conditions from a moral standpoint. But I think that the ideal solution is to have an extension of Medicare that covers folks like that and then let insurance companies actually go back to being insurance companies. Um, let's see, number five. Lastly, the entire system from insurance companies to government employees of healthcare uh, and politicians to doctors, everybody in the entire system right now is incented to maintain the status quo. It is estimated that government health care agencies waste or lose to fraud somewhere north of $200 billion per year. To put that into perspective, that is equal to one-third of our defense budget, and it is getting close to the amount that the U.S. government spends paying interest on its $20 trillion in debt. The government pays about 1.3% of GDP on interest and loses about 1% of GDP on wasted or fraudulent health care expenditures. So... Guess what? Most of that $200 billion that is either wasted or spent on fraud, where does it go? It goes into the pockets of insurance companies, Medicare employees, doctors, who knows who, participant of the existing system. It's like a big bonus going straight into the pockets of the entrenched. So I could do an entire podcast on the problems in healthcare, but I'll leave you with one depressing thought and one happy thought. Depressing thought first. I don't think the problems in healthcare are solvable. The incentive structures are too messed up. The system's entrenched interests are too strong. The sheer size of the problem creates an insane amount of inertia and, crucially, politicians are by and large a group of people who only care about getting elected, not getting anything done or working together. Maybe we could do something if Republicans and Democrats would work together, but they won't, so they will just keep on trying to destroy what the other side is trying to do. So, rest assured, Obamacare is an absolute disaster. But, on the flip side, it's not like there was any alternative that anybody could definitively say would be better. It isn't Obama's fault that Obamacare is a disaster. It is a byproduct of where the system has gotten to today. It is the entire system's fault. And I seriously doubt any reforms from Trump's government or any government in the future will be able to solve these structural issues. This will remain a problem until it isn't. And here's what I mean by that. Here's my happy thought. At some point in time in the future, and long before the government's debt due to healthcare spending hits catastrophic levels, healthcare costs will start to fall. They will start to fall, not due to anything the government does. Rest assured, they will remain useless. But because the exponential growth of technology is beginning to take hold in healthcare, and to date it has barely benefited healthcare at all, this exponential technology growth will start to impact every part of the way healthcare is delivered, what treatments are possible what tests and diagnostics are used, what drugs are prescribed, and so on. 
until around three to five years ago, there was no such thing as using machine learning and neural networks to process medical information. There was no using a computer to diagnose illnesses. There was no using a computer to look at MRI scans. There were no algorithms documenting every single case of cancer and recording the outcomes of different treatments. Nobody was considering the different genes the patients had. There was no ability to map the genome of every single strain of cancer and type of virus. All of this stuff just became possible in the last five years. And applications have only come to market in the past two years or so. Things like chemotherapy and radiation are brute force treatments that will be considered barbaric 20 years from now. In the past, if you got a serious cut on your leg, and I mean past like Civil War, they would just cut the whole leg off. Even 50 years ago, if you had a serious toothache, the most common thing to do was pull out the tooth. Just like those things seem barbaric now, destroying your body's immune system and poisoning your entire body, which is what chemo and radiation are, in order to kill cancer, will also be seen as barbaric. And the reason we will be able to create new treatments is because we will not be attacking, quote, generic evil bad cancer and tumors. We will be attacking the specific genes of the cancer with drugs that are optimized for the specific genes of the person. Even better, probably not too long after we have hit ubiquitous personalized gene-slash-DNA-level treatment. Things will improve by another magnitude that will seem even bigger than going from brute force to personalized treatments. I am referring to the point in time at which all illnesses become an engineering problem. Currently, illnesses are a biological and chemical problem. Take cancer, for example. Cancer is the growth of unwanted cells. Literally, at seen from one perspective, it is nothing more complicated than a bunch of cells growing where they shouldn't be. So this means that if we are eventually capable of doing things like creating nanobots and guiding them within our bodies, we should be able to just send them in to zap the cancer, repair the broken bone, or who knows, maybe we'll be doing something like using in vivo gene editing techniques to cure inherited diseases like cystic fibrosis. But specifically, with cancer, the way we treat it right now is we run millions of A-B tests and we see how chemical or drug X impacts cancer type Y or disease type Y. This is expensive, it takes years, and each disease requires its own solution. But if we get to the point where we are capable of literally zapping cancer cells out of the body, then we might need only a few different types of cancer treatments to treat all types of cancer. For example... We might need one cancer treatment for cancers of the blood, like leukemia. That is one type of engineering problem. How do you kill the bad cells in blood? We might need one cancer treatment for solid tumors. That is another type of engineering problem, zapping solid cells. And maybe we need one type of treatment for cancers of the brain, which is a unique environment unlike the rest of the body. So I don't know when this will happen, but my guess is it will happen sometime between 20 and 40 years from now. That will probably be before the government's debt load becomes catastrophic. This will cause the costs of healthcare to drop so far that the inefficiencies and bad incentives and government ineptitude 
will begin to descend into irrelevancy. Again, when disease becomes an engineering problem rather than a biological and chemical problem, costs will drop. So, uh, that's healthcare. Here is a, another example, one which has been kind of fixed, but it's a very powerful anecdote. Um, and I'm talking about the incentives around the banking industry and subprime loans. I will not go into detail, but the very nature of subprime loans means that they are only given to people who probably have a high risk of not being able to pay them back. Subprime loan deals involve high interest rates and interest rates which can be increased over time. Anyone who is a good credit risk would never take out a subprime loan. Now, banks don't deserve all of the blame for subprime loans. Bill Clinton and his government at the time probably deserve at least 20% of the blame. George Bush and his government probably deserve at least another 20% of the blame. And give the rest to banks. Governments, starting with Clinton, were all about promoting the idea of home ownership. They wanted to get minorities into owning homes, more minorities into owning homes. They wanted to get more Americans, period, to own homes and fulfill the stereotypical American dream. So governments incentivized banks to make loans to people who couldn't really afford them. And in most cases, the government actually buys the loans from the banks so that the banks didn't even have to keep the risk of default on their own balance sheets. That's what Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac do. They buy home mortgages from banks. So a bank gets to collect their 1% transaction fee or whatever it is for making the loan, package that loan, bad loan, with a bunch of bad loans, sell them to Fannie and Freddie, eliminate their risk, and call it a day. So this almost brought down the entire financial system. Funny fact for you. During the subprime loan explosion, a new term was coined called ninja loans. Ninja loans stood for no income, no job, no assets. That's right. Banks, with the government 100% knowing and turning a blind eye, were letting people fill out mortgage applications without ever verifying that what people put on the application was accurate. So while politicians on the left and right may blast big banks, just know that a huge share of the blame, maybe even half, should be going to the government. And especially the politicians behind these harebrained policies to get more people to buy homes, whether or not they could afford it. Some banks, by the way, were even advising their mortgage loan officers to tell clients to lie about their statistics regarding income and assets, knowing that the bank was never going to verify the information. So long as home prices always go up, people could refinance their loans if they couldn't make the payments because they would have additional equity in their homes from the rising price. Or the bank could just repossess the home because it would be more worth more than the mortgage on it. This, of course, is what all came tumbling down when house prices fell across the country. So, another reason banks were issuing some private loans to people who couldn't afford them was that all of their competitors were doing it. Banks were concerned with, quote, keeping up with the Joneses. They didn't want to have to tell their shareholders that they were losing market share by not taking on dangerous loans. And shareholders were too stupid to force the banks to make good long-term decisions. The last reason banks did this is that bank executives were not compensated according to long-term share price performance. They were compensated according to earnings targets, revenue growth, market share, and so on. A long list of things that is completely subject to driving bad decision-making. Rest assured, if bankers' pay was tied to their share price performance over a period of 10 years or more, they would not have been putting their entire companies at risk. 
famously, one of the CEOs who should go down in history as one of the worst CEOs of all time, Charles Chuck O. Prince, was asked about Citigroup's exposure to subprime loans, and he responded, As long as the music is playing, you've got to get up and dance. The implicit idea behind his comment was that he understood that it was not necessarily a good idea. But because the, of the incentives in place, he really had no choice. If you ever hear a CEO say this, please run for the hills. So it wasn't just him. Almost all banks were doing it. And it resulted in share price drops north of 50% and up to 90% for even some of the major banks. Some of which might have, some of which certainly would have, uh, gone out of business, if not for bailouts by the government. So there are two examples, banking and healthcare, where bad incentives almost brought down the house. Now, let's look at the world of financial advisors and asset managers. These are two places where it is very easy to fall prey to people who are incentivized to do things that are heavily counter to your own interests. First, let's look at brokers. Brokers are people who get paid for every transaction they cause. For example, a stock broker is someone who gets paid every time one of his clients buys or sells a stock or a mutual fund. This is obviously a terrible compensation structure. Your advisor does not make more money if you make more money. He makes more money if you trade more. We already know 100% that frequent trading is bad. No brokers make money for their clients trading frequently. In fact, there is a direct documented, studied, proven correlation between good long-term performance and not trading frequently. For most people, the best thing they can do, and of course I mean everybody who isn't my client because my clients will do better, but for most people, the best thing they can do is buy an index fund and hold on to it forever. Brokers make zero dollars from this. Consider a hypothetical. A broker has a client with a million dollars. He gets paid 1% of every transaction his client makes. So every year, if he gets his client to turn over his entire portfolio, meaning he gets his client to sell everything in it and buy something else, and by the way, 100% turnover is actually pretty average in the mutual fund industry. But so he gets a 1% transaction. If the, port if the client turns over the entire portfolio, buys something else, he would make $10,000 in fees. 10000 is 1% of a million. Now, if he gets his client to turn over his entire portfolio two times, he gets $20,000. If his client actually does what he should be doing and just holds an index fund, the broker makes nothing. Obviously, this is bad. And here's another takeaway for you. If you ever run across a broker, or if your parents use a broker, they should immediately stop doing business with them and move to an advisor who does not charge based on transactions. There are zero exceptions to this rule. Companies like Edward Jones are incented to sell you bad financial products and trade too frequently. And if you are a little confused as to the difference between a broker and a financial advisor, because many brokers call themselves financial advisors, just ask the person how they get paid. If they get paid whenever you make a transaction, or if they get paid by putting you into mutual funds, run for the hills. For that matter, if they ever put you in a mutual fund ever, run for the hills. So this we know 100%. Stock brokers' interests are not aligned with clients. Now, let's actually talk about mutual funds a little bit more. This is another conflict of interest that should be very obvious. Now, I won't say names, but literally every single company that ever puts money into mutual funds or that advertises mutual funds um, or that sells anything related to mutual funds 
these companies are virtually guaranteed to not be acting in their client's best interest. Mutual funds are broken. The entire model is broken. They don't work, and we have decades of history to prove this unequivocally. So not only are mutual funds known to not work as investment vehicles, even worse, Many companies that put their clients into mutual funds get paid by the mutual funds to put their clients in there in the first place. So, the product is broken, but they get paid to sell it. They don't get paid to put their clients into low-cost index funds. Um, and by the way, even companies like Goldman Sachs have their own mutual funds, which have performance that is just as bad as anybody else, by the way. Um, but if you're in a Goldman Sachs advisory program, you're probably going to be getting charged 1% of your assets for bad advice. Remember, if they put you in mutual funds, it's bad advice. They're going to charge you 1% of assets to put you in bad mutual funds. And on top of that, you're going to be paying 0.75% or something along those lines for the mutual fund itself. It's backwards 50 ways from Sunday, but that's how the industry with trillions of dollars in it is still run. So why do I say mutual funds are broken? It's just down to the data. 93% of medium cap mutual funds, 92% of large cap mutual funds, and 95% of small cap mutual fund managers underperform a low-cost ETF investing in the same thing over a long period of time. The percent of managers who beat the index, that tiny little 7, 8, or 5% sliver, are impossible to identify ahead of time. Just like if you have 5,000 people flipping coins, one of them is going to come up with 20 heads in a row. But it's not because they're a great coin flipper. It's because they're lucky. So I've talked about this in another podcast, but I'm going to point it out again. And this is the explanation for why mutual funds and even more of a joke, hedge funds. Hedge funds are the absolute biggest joke on the planet. They perform worse than mutual funds now, believe it or not. Isn't that hilarious? But here's the why, and it boils down to simple math. If the market returns 8% per year, then if a mutual fund charges 1% of assets as its fee, that's the same thing as them charging 12.5% of your profits every year. Divide the 1% fee they take by the 8% the market returns, that comes to 12.5%. So in order for a mutual fund to just tread water, not do better, just tread water, they have to beat the index by 12.5%. If they want to do what they say they will, which is beat the market, they have to do even better. If they want to outperform the market by a mere 1%, then that means they need to beat the index by 25%. 12.5% to cover their fee and 12.5% for the additional outperformance. Obviously, almost no one can outperform by 25% a year, year in and year out, decades in a row, and that's why 95% of mutual funds do not beat the index. Hedge funds are up against the same impossible math. They charge 2% fees meaning they have to beat the market by 25% just to tread water. And if they want to beat the market by 1%, then they have to beat the market by 37.5% year in and year out for decades. This is why the average hedge fund has returned somewhere around 3 or 4% over the past 10 years versus 9% for the S&P 500 stock index. To put real dollars on that, if you put your money into an average basket of hedge funds and you start with 100K 10 years ago, you'd have $134,000. If you put your money into a stock index fund, you'd have about $236,700, more than $100,000 more. Talk about a joke. Warren Buffett famously made an investment with somebody 10 years ago 
uh, bet him a million dollars. He said, you pick whatever combination of hedge funds you want. I bet that that will underperform the S&P 500. Lo and behold, the hedge fund performance was about half of what the S&P 500 did. And this guy could pick whatever hedge funds he wanted. He was incented to win. He wasn't even incented to get fees. He wasn't incented to charge 2% or 3% of assets. His incentive was just to beat Warren Buffett performance-wise uh, so that he could get the million dollars. Um, but lo and behold, he could not do it. And he was in the business of picking hedge funds, by the way. So there you have it. Be careful of people whose incentives are not aligned with your own. The results you can expect from working with those people will be much worse than working with someone who shares your objectives. This should be obvious, but most people don't bother to dive into some dive into how someone is incentivized. You should always do not forget. Coming at you with insights and optimistic perspectives week after week, hopefully for infinity. I'm Ben Buchanan.